do want to welcome you to Genesis Community Church. We are glad that you're with us as we continue on our Exodus series, which began after Easter, so we're only a few Sundays into Exodus, and it has been, for me, both a great challenge because going through Exodus material together as a church is a little different, uh, but also incredibly encouraging because we are able to see aspects of God's character and how he has always been doing the things that he said he would do and the ways in which Exodus 4 fits into all that he's doing. Remember, for the Christian, the destination is resurrected body in a new heaven and a new earth. Like That's where we're headed. So we're, this is, how does this fit into that? Right? God is still moving us in a direction. Sometimes we think our faith only looks backwards only looks at you know, something that has historically happened, but it looks at both what has happened in the work of Jesus for us, and it longs for what will happen when he makes all things new. And so all that we're doing, we both look backwards always, and we're always looking forward to that time where our bodies don't ache, there is no sin in this world, Satan is conquered, and we are in a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be awesome. So how does Exodus 4 help us with that? Well... There is a certain amount of pressure that you feel or that I feel to produce, to execute, and to have it all together. I remember being a speech communication major at LSU, which is the major you pick when you don't really want to pick one. Uh, It's communication studies now, but I still have a BA in speech communication. I was like one of the last ones to actually get speech communication. And so they try to sell their their degree to you as saying, most employers can train you in the thing they want you to do, but they can't necessarily train you to speak. So come be with us, we'll help you speak, you're going to have the most desirable trait an employer would want, and then let them train you in the specific things that you want. You you can try that for being a physician, but it doesn't really work. Can I be a doctor? Well, what's your degree in? Speech. (laughs) I have great bedside manner, but I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but we do, we feel this pressure. We go, I, I, gotta, I gotta speak well, especially in church life. I mean, it's funny, you know, we always say churches aren't in competition, but doesn't it sometimes feel like they are? And here, here's why, you know, you send me a text and you go, hey, did you see what this church is doing? Or did you see how they preach? Or did you see the song that they're singing? Or did you see the outreach that they're doing? And I'm like, I probably did. And you know how insecure this makes anybody feel when you just kind of say, I heard this sermon or I saw this guy or I read this book. And you're kind of like, are you just trying to say you want to go to that church? Because you can, you know. I don't know if we'll be able to do that, right? But it feels this, you feel this pressure. You might feel this even sometimes in your marriage, not in the, same, in the same way, but you go, oh my gosh, did you see where they vacationed? Or did you see how they spent time together? Did you see what, what they did? Or, uh, did? It looked like they had so much fun. And you go, oh gosh, like... You're hyperventilating. You go, I can't, I can't pay for that. I can't do that. I can't, I can't be that person. You should marry them, right? And you have all those funny conversations. Then you kind of compound it all because social media is just a compounding you know, drain on our souls where we look at these things and then we see the way people are living and we see the way that they exalt themselves and we see the way that churches say, look at what we're doing, we crushed it, we had X amount of baptisms, we had X amount of these things, we had these kind of things and that kind of thing. You're just like, mm-hmm. how many did you guys baptize? Like three? It's not 300, not 3,000, it's three. And those are the Lord's three, right? Right, doesn't matter, they're the Lord's three. But what happens when you start to feel like, I'm not sure I have enough? 
I'm not sure I have it all together. I'm not sure I'm the one for the job. I'm not sure that I can do this. Right? We should always, as Christians, feel as if we can't get it done. There should be this feeling of, this needs something else because I'm not enough. Like, that's where we live. We live in a position of weakness. We live in a position of inability to get it done. It's not skill. In church life, making a resume is one of the funniest things in the world because you fill it with your accomplishments, and then you kind of have to say, I really didn't have a ton to do with that. I, like, it, it was the Lord, but here's what happened while I was there that the Lord did, and if you want to hire me, great. <laughs> so we kind of feel this way of going, how do I, how, what do I do? When I was in seminary round two, I got exposed to this thing that you might have heard of called imposter syndrome. You ever heard of this? It's, just a, it's a phrase where you just feel like you are the guy with the nose and the fake eyebrows wearing the glasses. Like, it just feels like you just show up on the scene and you are the least aware, least trained, least prepared, how in the world did they let me in kind of person. You just feel ill-equipped for what's gone on. And then you get to hear somebody like, this was the director of doctoral studies at that time. He said, I know you're going to feel, all of you guys are going to feel as if this isn't the place for you or that you don't measure up, but you have to remember we picked you. We picked you. That we saw something in you that made us want you to be here. You're always going to feel like you don't measure up, but recognize that it's, it's us seeing something in you that got you here. And so remember that when you're struggling or when you're having a hard time or when you don't feel like you can get it done or when you maybe even want to drop out. Remember that. Well, it's funny because that's exactly what happens in Exodus chapter 4. We're actually still in the burning bush encounter, aren't we? We're still dealing with, we haven't finished it. Three talks about the bulk of it, but we're now dealing with Moses' insecurities. He had a little bit of, in chapter 3, well, what's your name going to be? What do I call you when people ask, who is this God? But then we get to chapter 4, and it's almost like those insecurities got compounded. He starts to realize what this is going to take. You need somebody to go before Pharaoh, and that person is supposed to say, let my people go. You know, the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he said this. So I go and tell Pharaoh, my God told me to let us go. That's what I'm supposed to do. And then what starts to happen? Imposter syndrome sneaks right on in. So he's dealing with the Lord. He's interacting with the Lord going, how do I, how do, I do this? <clears throat> he has two kind of main insecurities in this mission that he's been called to by God. The first one is, what essentially, what if the people don't, I can't confirm who you are. I can tell them who you are, but what if they don't trust that? What if that's not enough? So what else can I, what else can I do? God responds to that. The second one that he deals with is, I can't speak well. I know a degree program that would have helped with that. <clears throat> but he says, I can't speak well. Which is funny because, in fact, the book of Acts talks about Moses as being eloquent in speech. And Aaron very infrequently speaks when you're reading Exodus or you're seeing Deuteronomy. So Moses is the speaker. So he has this kind of insecurity about who he is, though later on in the history of God's people, they speak about how well he could speak. And so he has insecurity number one, which is, 
how they're going to know you're powerful, essentially. Insecurity number two is, even then, I'm not your guy. I'm not your guy. And that's what we get to see today. That God responds to our insecurities with both abundant confirmation and also his provision, his, his protection, his reminder of who he is. So I'm going to read the whole passage, Exodus 4, 1 through 17, and then we'll go through it in kind of two movements, 1 through 8 and 10 through 16, 10 through 17. Here we go. Then Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they'll say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. And he, that be the Lord, said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they, do not, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground, which is foretelling a plague that we're going to get to later. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I, I am... I am slow in speech and of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh Lord, please, please send someone else. It's like when you tell your kids to talk to an adult at the grocery store. Please! Please don't make me do that. One time I was a nanny, or a manny, we'll call it that, in seminary, and I had this happen. A kid lost his wallet that I was watching, and I said, please go there and tell them that you need to find your wallet. He started crying. Kid was in middle school. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take, that, take in your hand that staff with which you shall do these signs. That is our passage. So we're still in the burning bush account. Chapter 3 begins it. Chapter 4 ends it. The middle to end of chapter 4, what we'll get to next week, is a really bizarre kind of transitional story about circumcision and just oddness. It's going to be a blast. So we'll get there next week. But we're in this spot where the compounding effect of Moses' insecurities, because he's looking inward, he's looking inward, he's thinking about what he brings to the table, and he's not looking at the character of the one who is speaking to him. In the first eight verses, we see the way that God acts, and he acts powerfully 
to confirm his message. He acts powerfully to confirm his message. Remember Moses' initial concern. Verse 1, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Right? That's his insecurity. That's his fear. They're not going to hear me. They're not going to hear anything I have to say. I mean, I can say our God appeared. I could say he's going to deliver us. But those could just be empty words. Why would they believe me? It's been 400 years here. And now one guy is going to show up on the scene and say, no, it's going to change. I haven't even been there for 40 years. So a stranger comes in town and says, we out of here. Like, what, is that really what's going to happen? He's just going to show up and say, well, I'm going to go before Pharaoh, one of the most powerful guys around. I'm going to march up and go, let my people go. And they're going to go, yeah, sure. I'm going to go tell Israel that, and they're for it? I mean, I know that they are not, that God has promised them a land, right, at Genesis chapter 12. God has promised them a land, but, but 400 years is a long time. You have roots. You have a place to live. You can make life work. So now we're going to uproot these people and we're going to go somewhere else? Okay. But I don't think they're going to buy it. Well, what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do there? He gives him three signs. Three signs. And those signs show that God has power over the forces of this world. If you look at Really, America doesn't do this the same way. I was going to say only in the Old Testament, but many cultures in the world still are going to put little g gods and goddesses as in control of the natural world. In control of the natural world. And in the Old Testament, gods and goddesses would do the same, that they were in charge of fertility, or they were in charge of weather, or they were in charge of crops and agriculture. And so Egypt would be the same way. Pharaoh is kind of the, the representation of, of the, the polytheistic worship of the people of Egypt. That's why it's this battle between the true God and the false gods. Like that battle's constantly going on in the book of Exodus. But what God is about to do is say, I don't play games. I'm not a magician. I'm going to demonstrate that I have power over the things of Egypt that they might think are phenomenal. The first one is the snake, remember? So take your staff, and a staff was a sign of power, ruler. We don't walk around with staffs, but a staff was a sign that somebody had a certain level of authority. And so take your staff and throw it down. And what happens? That staff becomes a snake. Little spooky. Moses actually is scared by that, runs away because it's a snake. Right? Like Indiana Jones, I hate snakes, right? Like that's, that's what you get. But if you actually look at even ancient Egyptian pharaoh like, headdresses, they have snakes on them. They have snakes on them. Snakes were seen as powerful creatures. And what is God doing but toying with it? Turn your staff into a snake and then watch this. Grab it again. That snake's done. It's just a piece of wood again. There's a sign for you. These guys who think snakes are awesome... Drop that thing down. Watch it become a snake. And then watch me change it back. Don't worry about what they do or what they worship or what they think or in what animals they find power. I'm the one who has power. That's that first sign, the staff to a snake. God is superior to the powers of Egypt. He's superior to the ones that they, they worship. He's superior to their symbols. He is superior to that. 
the next one is interesting. Put your hand in your cloak. Take it out and it's a leprous, diseased hand. Many would say that, that leprosy or this, this skin disease was something that was common in Egypt. It was something, like, we wouldn't have that in the same way in our world because we can, it's pretty easily treatable. But if you had it, you had it. That's why there were laws even God gave to his people about this is how you would treat somebody with a skin disease. This is how you would handle somebody with a skin disease. So they were common enough. And so what God did is and he just showed power over the natural world, wood to snake, snake to wood. Now he's showing power even over our bodies. I'm going to take the disease that the people might fear that's going to make them stay away, that they can't heal. Watch this. Not only am I going to make it exist, I'm going to make it disappear. I have power over the natural world, but I, have, I am able to heal ailments that are common and avoided. I can do that. He shows us power through that second sign. And the Lord says, if the people don't don't affirm me because of the first sign. And remember the, the Egyptian magicians that are showing up. They're going to they're gonna kind of come to blows a little bit in the first plague cycle. We're like, we can do that too. Some things they can't do, but I get it. So they're going to try and show the same thing. So they don't believe you for the first sign. And they don't believe you for the second sign. We'll give them the third. Go to the Nile. Take a little bit of it. And then come and pour it out. And that's blood on the ground. Three signs. Snake, power over the superior, God is superior to the powers of Egypt. The hand being leprous is showing that God is able to heal and make ill. He's doing both of those things in that movement. I'm going to show you it's ailed. I'm going to heal it. You're going to see that. Thirdly, Nile to blood, that God is superior to the forces of nature and the signs of this world. I mean, the Nile River was the place. It is still a significant way the world operates. We can't get away from it. We still need rivers. We still need rivers. And so we use rivers to get things everywhere. I mean, remember when the cargo ship was stuck in the canal in Egypt? And I think Egypt has sued that ship company for $900 million or something like that for just blocking the canal for a little while. Why? Because you're going to a restaurant or something like that now, and you see some sign on the door that says, I'm sorry, we don't have enough inventory, we don't have enough of this. Why? Because one ship got caught in a canal, right? Over in Egypt, you are living differently. That's how dependent we are on waterways. We don't really think about it, but that's how dependent we are to get the stuff that we use in our lives. And so what he's going to say is, I know people think this thing is so powerful. This river is so powerful, so strong, and it gets you what you need, and it offers you your agriculture and all those things. But watch this. I'll turn it into blood. That's how, in this sense, insignificant that is to me. That's how big I am. The things that you could never stop, the things that you could never do, the things that would scare you, the things that you would go, nobody in this world, not even Pharaoh and all his magicians and all his priests, nobody in this world could do those things. And God is saying, I am not of this world. I am superior to everything in this world. So he's given three signs. He actually will use those signs in the end of chapter 4, 
And he's to use these signs with his people to confirm to them that God sent him. Things that the world wouldn't be able to reproduce. Things that show God's superiority. Now, I I, want to talk briefly about this because we have an opportunity to talk about this idea of signs and wonders. Okay, so, so signs and wonders are interesting because they don't show up throughout the scriptures. They don't show up everywhere. They show up sometimes. Just remember how last week I said, I don't want you running around looking for your burning bush encounter. Like, let's not just be praying that God gives us a burning bush. Like, we have the Son of God, the one who speaks the very word of God for us. So we don't really need to go seeking out something else to speak to us. We have God's word. We have God's spirit. We have what he has revealed. That's pretty good. As a matter of fact, we have something superior to what Moses had, Jesus, the one who is superior to Moses, as the author of Hebrews argues for us. So we have something better in the person and work of Jesus. We don't need to be looking around for it. But the question is, should we always be expecting this type of miraculous movement as a part of what we do? And that's an interesting question. Because what you will find, for example, here in Exodus, and even you'll, you'll realize that they look back to it as how God brought the people out with signs and wonders and plagues. He brought the people out. You see this in the ministry of the apostles. You see God ministering in such a way that they're doing many signs and wonders. And if you're in a community group, I put a couple of verses in your discussion guide about this verse here or this verse there. Look at how they talk about it. And what were they to be? What were they to be? They were confirming the power, the presence of God and the, in a sense, an authenticating mark of his messengers. That's how they were operating. These types of signs and these confirmations were, if you just read the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, they were unique to specific ways that the message was going out and the messengers were bringing it. Evidently, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, what do you see? You see healing, you see signs, you see wonders, you see all kinds of things. In the ministry of the apostles, what do you see? You see the same thing. In fact, the book of Acts will say as much. They actually often delineate that it's the apostles who are doing the signs and the wonders. And then you have some people like you know Simon who's like, I want that power. That seems pretty good. He's actually rebuked for it. I want to have that, that kind of power. But we also need to say like this, that, that these activities are not constant expressions of how the Lord operates. And what I mean by constant is like always in existence. Well, for 400 years for the history of Israel here in Egypt, they weren't always in existence. They were confirming as this was going on. But also, also this, that in, I'll use the word pioneering contexts, and by pioneering, I mean places where the gospel has not gone. And I'm talking about today in chronology. You do sometimes even hear stories or speak to missionaries who say, there's just some crazy stuff happening right now where we are. There's some crazy things happening where we are, and we can't really explain it. But what has it often done is it's piqued the interest of the people, and then what happens? Hey, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. 
Let me tell you about who he is. Let me tell you about the one who has this power. So the signs and wonders are for the declaration of the goodness and work and mission of God. They're not just for us to kind of hold on to and think they're cool. Like it's not Moses walking around going, hey, watch this. Like he has the grandkids around, right? He's having their holiday and they have the, hey, grandkids, watch, 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 right? Right, he's not doing that. He's not trying to spook people by it. It doesn't exist just so that people think he's cool or that he can make a few bucks on the street corner shilling God's power for money. That's not why it's there. It's there to demonstrate his power, his presence, and his authority. Not to demonstrate Moses' power and not to make Moses look cool. If these things were constant expressions... And you have to see the warnings that exist about always seeking a sign. Jesus even says it. This generation's always looking for a sign. He's like, I'll give you one, the sign of Jonah. And they're like, huh? Right? Like, they don't know what that means. I'll be dead for three days, but I'm coming back. That's your sign. And so Jesus was not privy or interested in just giving people things because he thought they were cool. It was to demonstrate the power purpose and mission of God so that that mission continues. If they were a constant expression, then they would no longer be what? Signs and wonders. They'd be how life worked. They'd, be how, they'd just be how this life worked. You, when you saw them, you'd go, so what? Everybody can do that. Everybody can do that. Knowing the difference helps us not focus on the sign but on the character of the sign giver, God. Helps us to focus our attention rightly on his mission and his way, his power, his strength. It is, it is pretty interesting to read sometimes stories in the front lines of missions work where you just go, huh, never, never seen that before, never heard of that where it seems like the Lord is doing these, it's all a part of what? Making the name of God known, making his salvation clear, making his character more of a reality. But the emphasis is not on the sign, but on the Lord. And you know that because when we, next week, when we get to the end of chapter four, when they see the signs, they turn and they worship. That's the response. The nation of Israel sees the signs and they turn and they worship. I'll read you the verse, right? Spoiler alert, this is how the chapter ends. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. It was the declaration of what God had promised. It was the confirmation through these signs that God gave to Moses and it resulted in belief and worship. That's the end game. People who trust in the good and saving character of God. And it had been a long time since Israel had felt, perhaps, as if God had heard them. And so the Lord sends Moses with these three signs to show that God is powerful over everything in this world. And it's almost when you get to 10 through 17, it's almost as if Moses goes, yeah, that's great, but... I mean, that's really what he does. I mean, I know you're powerful and you have power over everything. He's just confirmed this. It just happened to Moses. Moses, this is happening to him just by himself. 
Him, a burning bush, a staff, turns into a snake, his hand turns leprous, and then he'll go to the Nile, and that's going to happen. So he's just getting this interaction with God, and what does he do? He doesn't go, you're right, I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to be concerned about. I have nothing. Instead, what does he say? I can't speak well, right? Like he just kind of tries to come and find something else. Look, verse 10. But Moses said to him, oh, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. That's his first concern. I'm not eloquent. I mean, this is, in, in a smaller sense, you're not going before Pharaoh, but it's like the first time you lead a community group and you're just going, ah, uh, I don't even know how I'm going to do here. I don't know what I'm going to say. I, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to say the dumbest things you've ever heard. I, like, somebody's going to ask me a question. What, this is like community group fear number one. What if someone asks a question I don't know the answer to? Then you say, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Like, that's, that's the solution. But they go, what if, what if something happens I don't know how to respond to? What if, what if they say something, or, or what if in this example, or, or what if I'm in this moment where I'm, I'm discipling somebody, and they ask a question about the scriptures, and they bring up a doubt that I have too. What happens then? Now, what in that moment is going on for you and for me and for Moses? What's going on in that moment is that God has just shown his power. He's reminded Moses that he's the one in charge, not Moses, and yet Moses still goes, yeah, but I don't really have it. You need somebody to go before Pharaoh and speak? I can't speak. I can't speak. Now, this is why I think Moses maybe is being, this is not a humble brag. I think he's being honestly insecure when he looks at what's before him. But Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household. Do you think he wasn't trained? Do you think he wasn't aware? Do you think that he, he was not given instruction on how to speak? He was raised up in that. And yet here he is, after 40 years of working for his father-in-law in Midian, going, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, I can't do that. And, and listen to the Lord's response in verse 11. Then the Lord said, of him, said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So we're going to stop right there, 11 and 12. So Moses makes the concern about him. And what does the Lord do? Who am I? Right? Moses goes, ah, I can't do it. The Lord said, who made you? Who made your mouth? Do you think I'm unaware of your insecurities? Do you think I can't think? you? you think I don't know this? Who made man's mouth? Who makes him speak? Who makes him not speak? Who gives him the skill that he has? Right, so for example, if you feel like, you know, you, you could use this verse as a joking way. If you're like, if you can't hit a baseball or you can't, you know, draw a picture or whatever it is, go, the Lord did it. He gave me my skill or lack thereof, and I'm okay with that. But what's happening is Moses is bringing his insecurity to the table, and the Lord is bringing him to the table. I'm bringing nothing. I can't do this. You've called me to something I can't do. The resume doesn't line up. God says, do you know who I am? 
Do you know who I am? I have the same question for you today. Do you know who the Lord is? Do you know his strength? Do you know his desire to save? Do you know that he knows your lost neighbor better than you do? Do you know that he gave you the job that you have? Do you know that he gave you the church that you have? We all have these lists of things in our life that we wish weren't that way. What if I had gone to this school? Or what if I had done this thing? Or what if I had this training? Or man, what if I didn't drop out of this? Or what if I paid more attention there? Get over it. Get over it. Are you somehow greater than the Lord? Is your power to screw up your life somehow greater than the Lord to redeem it? Is your fear about what you can and can't say or what you can and can't do or how you are uh, under-equipped for the task at hand, is that somehow going to have God go, you know what, you're right. <clears throat> I, I, I'm sorry. It, I, I, I thought your last name was different. I had it wrong. Like, hey, hold on, you know. Angel, please refile that. Like, that's not what he's going to do. He didn't somehow misread who you are. He didn't say to Moses, you're right, you are a fool. He reminds him of God's faithful character. I did these things. This is so important specifically for us like in the work of evangelism. Because we get so nervous about talking to people about Jesus. What if I offend them, right? That's like our big insecurity. What if I offend them? Are you kidding me? I'd rather somebody be offended by Jesus than offended because you thought that they might be offended. Who's the one who, who's the one who has the power to save? Is it you? Is it your eloquent speech? Is it your ability to kind of answer every concern or handle every doubt? Believe me. If you had every doubt answered by God, do you really think you'd trust him 50 times more than you do now? No, you'd come up with 50 new doubts. You'd be more concerned. Well, okay, I know, you, I know you said that, but it'd be the same thing Moses did. I know you're powerful. I've seen it. You've demonstrated it now to me twice. You've given me the third thing to do with denial, but I can't speak, and you didn't fix that. You didn't fix that. And notice God actually doesn't fix it. What he says is, essentially, I made you. I made you. This is the constant reminder for us is that we don't bring anything to the table. We don't bring anything to the table. That's what makes the grace and power and provision and presence of God for us so glorious. It's because we don't. What does God want to do through, for example, Genesis Community Church? Does he want a church of people where you kind of look at it and go, I think a group of unbelievers could have pulled off that service. I think a bunch of people who just, you know, like they just tried hard enough could get it done. Yeah, I think that could have happened. That's not what you want, right? You want, you want to show up to this space with these people to gather together and for something. We pray this every morning when we gather. We go, Lord, do something bigger than we could do. Do something more important than we might even think. Show up more powerfully than we would even want you to. Make what we say and what we hear real for these people because we can't do it. 
I cannot convince you that God is faithful. But I can declare to you that he is. And I can show you how he has been. And our prayer is that the Spirit of God works in your heart in such a way that you go, you're right. I give up. I give up. But what does Moses do? Instead of going, you're right, in verse 13 he says, just send someone else. Please send someone else. It's like when I was telling the kid to go to the customer service counter at the grocery store. I can't do it. I'm sure he can now, which is why I'm doing it. It was so long ago, I don't think he watches these sermons, but I love you. Stuck with me, though. Because you, well, isn't, that, isn't that true about us? We're like, well, could you do it? You speak better. You, you know this stuff better. You can, you can handle it better. So what? The Lord is not always sending the most qualified person into battle. You read about Gideon? Right? Like, what does God do? Let's get the warriors out of here. We're going to leave you with the weirdos. We're going to go ahead and reduce your army so there's no way that anybody could say, this was you. That's how he works. Through a bunch of misfits who seem to somehow, by God's grace, do far more than they would have ever anticipated because they're not trusting in themselves, but they're trusting in him. And yet, what does Moses do but go, no, just send someone else. And Moses is on the receiving end of the Lord's anger. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And this is interesting because what we're going to have here is both fury and grace. In the same verse, verse and a half, we get both of these things. Why was God angry with Moses? It seems to be that he was angry with Moses because of his disbelief. Because Moses, after being shown God's power and affirmed in his good character that he was the one who was with it, Moses still said, I know, but send someone else. How obstinate do you have to be? I do this. I do the same kind of thing. I'm not the one. Please do, just send somebody else. Do that. I don't want to speak of that thing. Or I don't want to do that thing. Or just send somebody else. I think it was his disbelief, his disobedience that was so frustrating. That's why there's fury. But then what else is there? There is grace. There's grace there because what does the Lord do but go, hey, look, there's Aaron, your brother. He's coming to see you. I know he can speak well. He'll be glad in his heart. You speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his. I will teach you both what to do. This really is the gracious provision of God. That even with all the pushback and all the I can't do it and all, the, all of those things that Moses brings to the table, what does the Lord do but go, we're doing this thing. There's Aaron. You guys go. But there is that little sting of the disobedience. And I'm not sure from here on out because really you do see largely Moses speaking. 
There's some Moses and Aaron, but there's Moses speaking. Moses is still the one conversing with the Lord. The book of Deuteronomy is speeches by Moses to the people of Israel before they enter the land. Moses clearly doesn't just kind of go, you know, like give him his PowerPoint and go, here you go, buddy, like good luck. He doesn't do that to Aaron. Moses still speaks, but God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you your brother. And isn't, honestly, though, for us in our weaknesses and in our frailties, doesn't that sometimes the little boost that we need to go, okay, I'm on it. I can do it. When you ask somebody to go somewhere, hey, let's go. Let's go do this. I want to see you go do that. Go. You're like, I can't do it. You go, what if somebody went with you? I think if somebody went with me, I could do it. You go, okay. Then you go do it. Because even in our frailty, even in our frustration, even in our pain, what is God doing? But he's providing ways. He's providing ways. That's what he's done for us. It's always what he's done with us. So though he's angry at the disbelief, he still provides the provision. I mean, think about your own salvation. What are we outside of Christ, but obstinate, disbelieving, frustrated, send somebody else, I don't have what it takes, kind of people. And what does the Lord do for us? There is absolute frustration, anger, and hostility toward our sinfulness. But in realizing that we will never turn on our own, what does the Lord do but go, Here's my son. He will do everything that you would not do. He will be everything that you were supposed to be. He will speak everything that I tell him. There is never a moment in the ministry of Jesus where he goes before the Father and says, I can't do it. I can't do it. Father, I just can't do it. I'm not the one. He has the moment in Gethsemane where he says, if there's another way, but not my will, but yours. But he never has a moment where he says, someone else. Clearly, I'm the wrong one for the job. The Lord is always dealing with us. But the most significant way he dealt with us was in the sending of his son to provide what we needed, which was the way to be fully right with him. God always is providing ways. Always providing ways. So for you, church, this morning, if anything, it's in, it's in the spirit of brokenness. I, I know that. But what do I want you to do? I want you to have confidence. I want you, I want you to have confidence in, in who you are in the Lord. And what he's called you to, to make disciples of all nations, wherever he has placed you in this world to be a part of that great commission, I want you to have confidence because, one, you serve the true and powerful God. Unchanging. Completely unchanging. The same God that is speaking to Moses in this moment is the God we serve. So have confidence because of who he is. And then secondly, because of how he's made you. To recognize that he has provided what you need.
in every way. He's knit you together. You don't fool him. You might have that thing in your life where you go, I just can't do that. I'm just not good at that. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a this. I'm not a that. I just can't do those things. It is not on you to see someone come to faith. It is on you to do the work of an evangelist. It is not on you to come up with the equation that's going to get this person to finally believe. That's not you. It's on you to deliberately and regularly labor in prayer for these people and joyfully and gladly share with them the truths that God saves them through his son. Not you. That The provision is Jesus. That's what God has done. And so wherever he has placed you, wherever you are, you will always bring these feelings of inadequacy to the table. But what should we remember when that happens? That God has found you adequate because he is more than adequate. He called Moses. I mean, think about the offense that we feel when we ask somebody to, you know, I have a job for you, I want it to be this. And they go, nope. It's like, no, really, like this. Nope, I'm not going to do it. Okay, I guess so. The Lord calls Moses into something, Moses goes, nope, I'm not your guy. The Lord goes, you are. You are. I'm powerful. I've made you. I'm sending you. I'm with you. Remember chapter 3. I mean, this is the same interaction. What did he say? I am going to deliver my people. I'm going to do it. He didn't say Moses is going to go. You're going to go, and you're going to go ahead and just kind of open the lock and let them all out, and they're going to run out. Like It's not Moses. Moses is a part of of what God is doing to bring salvation, deliverance to his people, Israel. He is but a part, but it is always God doing the work. It is always God doing the work. You are but a part in what God is doing to see every tribe, tongue, and language worship a risen Lord Jesus. But you're a part it's God who is bringing us to that final destination. So we play our part with joy and with confidence because he's good. We don't need to downplay how we serve him. A big part of leadership, I say this a lot, I say leadership, like 80% of it is just showing up. You just show up. Let the Lord do his work. That's it. You just show up. And you go, all right, what are we doing? <laughs> Let's go. That's what I do every Sunday. I don't even prepare a sermon. I just show up. I'm kidding. And we trust in his character because it's him, it's not us.